I love that fight scene. Like, you know, oh, it's um, so great. It's great. I mean, the, the word obscene means off stage, right? Because in Greek tragedy, like you don't have the stuff to do compelling stage violence. Like that just wasn't part of the theater craft. But very often when bad things happen, when fights or violence happen, it has to happen yeah. off stage. And this moment of the fight, I was like, oh, just this wonderful moment of like Greek tragedy where things are happening off of the camera. And it's so much more powerful that way. Hey, Dukes here. And before we get into our discussion of Tampopo, the film by Juzo Itami, I wanted to mention a podcast you might enjoy. If you've ever wondered what it's like to summit Mount Everest or win an Olympic medal, or even to be put in prison for a murder you didn't commit, which would be much worse than those other two things, uh, there's a podcast that explores all of those things and a lot more. It's called What It's Like To with host Elizabeth Pearson Gar. On What It's Like To, you'll get interesting conversations with inspiring people and come away with a lot of ideas you can apply to your own life. I particularly enjoyed the episode called What It's Like to Sail Solo Across the Atlantic Ocean with Cal Courier, who was 16 when he did that single-handed sailing trip, and it's totally fascinating. Another one I liked featured working Hollywood actor Barrett Swatek, and she tells stories about shady, exploitative talent agencies, sort of how she broke into the industry, and a pretty hilarious story about sneaking onto a Hollywood lot in order to kind of scout it out. What It's Like To is available in all the places you get podcasts, so search for What It's Like To dot 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 or ellipsis to those in the know. All right, on to our discussion of Tampopo. I have an opening story I wanted to tell you. I was inspired I, by. I see it's something about Christopher's cakes. It is about Christopher's cakes. Um, Listeners, that's with uh, three K's. Indeed. Three? Hmm. Two. Well, Christopher. Uh huh. One K. Cake. Oh, yeah, you're right. K Three Ks. K -K -E. Yeah. Yes. Three Ks. All the. Uh, this, this is not a racist joke, I hope. <laughs> no. <laughs> I hope not. I certainly hope not. Not on my part. Um, uh -huh. You know, you and I were uh, texting er earlier this week, and I feel like there was a little bit of sense that we have a small and loyal audience, which we're very grateful mm -hmm. for. But I think both of us were sort of like maybe a little bit disappointed that our growth seems to have flattened out a little bit this fall. And like these things come up and they come down and, you know, it's sort of hard to say, but I think we both were expressing a little bit of that and we had some back and forth. And, and then on Saturday, inspired by this movie, I decided to make uh, Tonkatsu Ramen I also had to run an errand, in fact, return Tampopo, the DVD, to my cute little local library. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to buy myself a dessert from that cake shop. And there was a cake shop that opened in my little neighborhood, McKinley Park, like two or three years ago. And it, it's not a like coffee shop where you would go and like do your work with a laptop with Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. There's no paninis. There's no breakfast wraps. There's nothing with an egg. It's just cakes. And they do have an espresso machine. And so they do some like, but that's it. And no muffins, yeah. like no biscuits, <laughs> cake. No, 
Yeah. <laughs> no cupcakes. No. Well, there may be. No, I don't even think there are cupcakes. There yeah. are slices yeah, of cakes. Because uh, you can. Everybody knows that a cupcake is just a fucking muffin. They do. Wearing a hat. They indeed. They do sell cake tops, though, uh, which I, I don't maybe I, I don't know why they have hmm. cake tops for sale, but they're sort of wrapped. It, they're wrapped in a way very similar to if you were to purchase a whoopie pie at a main gas station, like similarly, like wrapped with a little like handwritten yeah, just, just, label. just a disc covered yeah. in cellophane, <laughs> yeah. covered in cellophane, often with like Dottie's whoopie pies. <laughs> right, you know? Yeah, yeah. With like a like an Avery printer label. Yeah. Uh, there you go, yeah. Like clearly somebody put the label on the whoopie pie first and then wrote Dottie's Pies on it. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, so it's sort of maybe a little bit higher end than that, but not much. And and there's a very specific aesthetic. Uh, all the letters in Christopher's Cakes are a bright color. It's sort of like birthday cake aesthetic, and the interior is done that way. And it's this beautiful little storefront in a kind of, you know, working-class neighborhood that is neither poor nor wealthy, neither mm-hmm. gentrified nor neglected, sort of in the middle of all of these different things. Um, and um, I've, I found it quite charming, and I take a lot of walks, and I've walked by Christopher's Cakes probably like 50, 60 times, and I've never gone in. And this time I was like, you know what, rather than going to the grocery store and buying like a $3 cake, I'll go in there and, and I bought a choco flan, which was like a chocolate cake in which one of the layers was flan. Uh, you know, when I walked up, there was a woman baking in the back and she called out somebody else and he came up and he was like, can I help you? And and I purchased and we chatted a little bit and I kind of wanted to say, how's business? Because I'd never see anybody in there, but he mm-hmm. seemed cheerful enough. And I got in, I had the sense that he was um, Latin, but not Mexican, Mexican being the largest Latin ethnicity in Chicago, but probably Caribbean. So maybe Puerto Rican or Cuban or Dominican would be the the most likely scenario. Or if he is Mexican, he's like from uh, Veracruz or somewhere on the Caribbean. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I don't know. It was just the vibe I got from him. And I I just immediately got the sense that like this is exactly what this guy wants to be doing with his life. And you could design a cake shop or a bakery that more people would probably come into, right? You could have a lot of tables mm-hmm. with Wi-Fi. You could have, um, you know, cheap, uh, you could have muffins, for God's sakes. You could have morning glories and sesame, you know, seed muffins. And you could you could have breakfast burritos. You know, there are lots of things you could do. And he, he was not going to do that. Like, he wanted a cake shop. He does serve espresso, but there's no place to drink it. You would just sit, stand at the counter and drink it or take it to go. As, as and, Italians intend. So I took, as I took my cake and I was... I was riding my bike back home. I was like, this is upper middle brow. (laughs) And I don't mean that as an adjective. I mean, it's like he's doing exactly what he wants to do. And he doesn't seem to mind that perhaps there is a business model that would bring more people in. Right. Like you and I could do a like 20 minute weekly podcast that was like top 10 new books, you know, that dropped this week kind of a boring podcast i i wouldn't want to do it i don't think i want to listen to it i don't really care about the newest books i sort of you know we could we could do a different version of this that probably grew our audience faster we could focus on a particular sector of fandom uh you know we could do all star wars novels um you know there's all sorts of things things that we could only do books i mean we we've we've branched out into film now and we're going to branch out in other ways too and i i feel like what we're we're doing exactly what we want to do and we want our podcast to be 
And, you know, we don't have to pay like $1,500 a month in storefront rent in McKinley Park, you know, only something like $25 a month in various like subscriptions and things like that for posting. So um, it just, I don't know, it just cheered me up a little bit to see uh, the the parable of Christopher's cakes um, made me recognize like... I have, I have three separate responses, ah, as okay. is very often the case Indeed. when we're talking. Um, first of all, like I went on, uh, so I, I, I have several Joshes. I have mm. many Joshes in my life. Mm. Um, I have uh, I have sort of a, a surfeit of Joshes. Yes, um, it was one of my Joshes' fiftieth birthday parties, fiftieth mm. uh, birthdays on Saturday, but we went for a bicycle ride uh, the day as somebody referred to as. Oh, this is sort of your boxing day. Ah, and I was yeah. like, "Huh, what an interesting way to talk the, about the day boxing after day. your birthday, right?" Right. Yeah. Exactly. I was like, "Does Christ think about Boxing Day as like his Boxing Day?" I don't know. Um, but uh, I was on that particular ride, and uh, somebody was asking me, "What is bringing you joy in your life right now?" And I had to think about it a little bit. But I was like, "You know what? This podcast I'm doing with my best friend Jesse Dukes, like." A lot of like shit in my life is going like completely sideways at the moment. <laughs> but like once a week I get on Zoom and I talk with my friend Jesse about books or movies and it's it's hilarious. And uh so that was a real upside about our podcast and the other was getting a text message from my mom which said your dad is lying on the couch listening to Upper Middle Brow smiling ear to ear. Oh. That's very cute. Did you determine which episode it was? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, to our, our most recent episode, the uh, oh, okay. episode. Excellent. Um, Excellent. And then uh, let's see. Uh, so do you know? Do you know the reason why Christopher's cakes was probably spelled with K's instead of C's? No. Uh, it is very often a trademark thing. Ah. Um, like so, when you see like cozy coffee spelled right. with a bunch of K's, there's another cozy coffee that is spelled with C's. It may be not even in existence, but somebody has the, in that particular, usually at the state level. Right. Like somebody has grabbed that state level um, assumed business name. Right. Um, so that's why it's not like some weird, like, proliferation of people who want to be German. Um, it is uh, actually uh, like a, a trademark and copyright. Thing. Right. But also maybe he does spell his name Christopher with a K. Maybe there is a, I mean, the other thing is that like there were a lot of Germans in uh, the Caribbean and Mexico too. So maybe mm -hmm. he is German Latino um, and, <laughs> and Christopher, although I, is Christopher German or Swedish? I don't even really know. It's Greek. Oh, it's Greek with a yeah, K. It means, a bear, it, it means bearer of Christ. Ah. Ah. Well, you would know that because you're sort of a Christopher yourself. <laughs> I, I am more than sort. I of. learned that. I learned that from um, uh, the, my great, great, great high school art teacher, John Hayes. So, is um, to does Topher mean bearer? I believe so. Yeah, right. I believe like Topher is some sort of uh, yeah. Shall we get into our uh, our 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 prime business? Yes, yes, let's get into it. As as usual, I only managed to get two out of my three anecdotes about your bakery in. Oh, but, uh, well, get the, will, let's do the third one. Sorry. The Josh well, the third proliferation, like, of, yeah. Josh's, <laughs> proliferation which, of Josh's, which led to your saying that this podcast gives you joy, which I agree with. This is one of the most fun things happening in my life right now, and it's something I always look forward to. And yeah, even too. just like editing it, 
I will um, procrastinate other tasks to edit some upper middle brow on Reaper for a little bit. Um, and uh, so no, what's my, the my only other anecdote was uh, what you're describing really makes me think of the Crown Bakery in Worcester, Massachusetts, mm. which uh, my mom always patronized for our birthday cakes. And sort of sounds very similar, like lots of primary colors, just a glass front counter. This is the 1980s, so I doubt an espresso maker, but maybe a coffee maker that yeah. maybe you could order some drip coffee from. Um, nowhere to sit. It's my it's my understanding that a lot of those cake places look like they're about to go out of business, but they are doing like great business on like basically catering like, people who order cakes yeah. from them. Yeah, I, yeah. I and that that's my hope for Christopher. Um, <laughs> and and I was even thinking in the analogy that sort of just as you and I are not likely to make a much money doing this thing that we love. We both have our catering. We have our equivalent of That's true. that. Yeah, yeah, we have our rate. <laughs> Dukes and Bag can always make a living. It, 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 yeah. Like, it might not always be yeah. the most exciting thing that we're doing in our lives, but usually it's something adjacent to that. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Our livings are adjacent to very interesting things, yeah. which is great. Yeah. That's, you know, that's what we're doing. Um, but, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about... I, I love that we watched it at the same time yeah like we both were watching at we the were same time to each other randomly and it was great it, yeah it was wonderful it was very nice to like know that psychically i think i was like 10 to 15 minutes ahead of you it felt like yeah um but it was really nice knowing that we were kind of wandering through i've never seen this have you seen this before no no but um yeah, we open in a theater this is juzo itami's 1986 uh, classic Tampopo, uh, revered. Holy crap. I didn't, I had not heard of this movie. Um, but when I brought it up with, uh, Josh on Sunday, mm -hmm. he was like, Oh my God, there is something with a crab and a woman's vagina. And I was like, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> I think it's a shrimp. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know that the vagina is involved exactly. But uh, but yes, but he was um, really correct in terms of yeah. like, we're in the ballpark, the, like the feeling correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we we we, we begin in a theater um, where we are greeted by a young gangster who is there with his girlfriend, who breaks the fourth wall right away and uh, says to us, ah, I see that you're going to the movies as well. Um, pretty much like complicating everything right off the bat. Right. <laughs> like, and that first look that he gives the camera is actually a little scary, too. Yeah. Uh, you're like, no, you're not supposed to see me. Don't look. <laughs> you know, like, It's kind of like if you watch Twin Peaks, there's a moment in a dream where Killer Bob does the exact same thing and appears to be looking right at you, right at you us. Are, you're right. And I had forgotten that moment. Creepy. It is terrifying. Yeah. It yeah. is creepy because he's is crawling on the bed actually towards you. Um, so it's as though you're having a nightmare and that man is crawling on your bed towards you. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we uh, the he's a young gangster. He kind of roughs up somebody else in the theater for eating potato chips loudly. Uh, Which his men hundred percent in yeah. agreement. <laughs> He also says something about uh, uh, digital watch alarms going off, yeah, and very I just love it. Like, and and also like anticipating the cellular phone era, sure, it was just sure. awesome. Um, 
so we yeah we we learn right away we're like oh okay we're sort of complicit in this movie making experience um and we cut I believe we go to the truck next. Yeah. We don't jump to... So we go to a truck. Um, there are two truckers, uh, Goro and Gun. And Gun is reading a book about ramen. Um, and we get this cut scene to a ramen master educating a young ramen eater how to correctly eat ramen to like really experience it. Um, and Goro is driving. Gun is reading the book. And uh, Goro is like, Oh my God, your book is making me hungry. Let's stop for ramen. Uh, and so they stop at a local ramen store. Um, they go in and uh, they, they get in a fight with some rude customers. Uh, we don't get to actually see the fight. It happens sort of wonderfully off scene, off, uh, off camera. Mm -hmm. um, and Goro loses because he's trying to take on five of these rude customers who are hanging out in the ramen shop. Um, he doesn't beat them off, but sounds like he sort of gives as well as he gets. And he ends up spending the night because he's knocked out. He doesn't spend the night romantically. Uh, the ramen owner is a woman. Um, she has a young son who is also beat up by uh, people his own age, by a group of bullies. A, a clear echo. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very. Uh, yeah. We're, we're both in the, the same world. Um she makes them breakfast. Uh, she makes excellent pickles, but we learn that she's really not a good ramen cook. Uh, Goro and Gun get in their truck to leave. She chases them down and she asks uh, Goro for help becoming a better ramen cook. And I'll kick it back over to you. We then go into a classic training montage. Uh, Goro is training uh, Tampopo. Um, you know, and everything from keeping the water hot enough and ladling out the noodles. Goro's training really focuses on the mechanics um, because later we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do train in some other dimensions. Um, and then in the midst of this training process, we get a scene that echoes both Mike Tyson's Punch Out and more initially Rocky, where Mickey is riding behind Rocky in a bicycle. Uh, they're jogging along a river in Tokyo. And then we get the first of a series of little interlude sketches um, that uh, there are some businessmen who happen to be walking by and the camera leaves uh, Goro and Tempopo and follows them into this fancy French restaurant. And then there is a series of skits that ensue in the restaurant, including several of these important middle-aged or older businessmen, and then the junior, the kind of office flunky who they all are kind of abusing. They're ordering French food. One of them makes a reasonable but not very sophisticated order of sole fish and Heineken beer. But then it turns out that the young guy is v very acquainted with French cuisine and makes an, an order that impresses the waiter and all the businessmen are embarrassed. Um, wh and whether they're embarrassed that he had the temerity to order something different than his seniors or whether they're embarrassed because he clearly is better at ordering food. Uh, we're not sure. And then um, there's a sort of pan within the restaurant to a kind of Miss Manners style um, manners teacher teaching a bunch of young women how to eat spaghetti in the proper Western way, which which means eating it very quietly and not slurping it. But then there's a, a Briton or 
perhaps American man in the restaurant, he's slurping his spaghetti, and then they all start slurping their spaghetti in a way that is both funny but also, to me, gets to be a little bit grotesque because there's just a long slurping spaghetti scene. Um, it's and, a little, it's it's a little reminiscent of uh, of the the great like vomit scene in Stand by Me. Yeah, where you're yes. just like, oh god, this it's, is too much. <laughs> yeah, there's too much of it, and there's a, a few moments I will say that I had that feeling with, especially some of the moments involving mm-hmm. the young gangster and his girlfriend. There's a, then there we get to the scene that you alluded to. Um, this restaurant also caters to uh, the gangster. This amazing spread, and then he and his girlfriend engage in sexual play using a lot of the food um and then i as i recall we're kind of back to tampopo and goro's quest um and they 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 go on a series of kind of ramen misadventures where they're kind of spying on other ramen shops learning ingredients there's one scene where she sneaks into the back of one shop and spies on a cook to learn his broth secrets. There's another scene where they almost get in a fight with some other ramen makers. Because the ramen rumble. The ramen rumble because Tampopo is um, is uh, kind of taunting them a little bit about their broth. And um, But at a certain point, they decide, um, Goro decides he's going to call in Sensei for help. And I'll kick it back to you. Yeah, so they go to find Sensei, um, who is homeless, it appears, and lives in a park with a bunch of other homeless people, um, who all turn out to be like fantastic gourmands. Right. Uh, they, um, one of them describes finding a very rare 1981 vintage. Uh, that they're a bottle where there's like a quarter left in a dumpster and he brings it back and everybody gets a sip of this incredible and they're like incredibly well cultured yeah and uh after goro says they're sort of taking sensei away uh they go up a set of stairs and all of the homeless gourmands also turn out to be a great chorus yeah they sing like four-part harmony (laughs) they sing this beautiful four-part harmony to sensei and goro and tampopo um one of them takes uh tampopo's son uh to break into a restaurant uh and after learning that tampopo's son loves rice omelets and makes him a perfect rice omelet on the spot as the night watchman arrives he goes in one door trying to catch them. They sneak out the other. It's it's like it's like something it's, from the Muppets. Well, Amazing. and I would say probably like Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin yeah. is sort of silent film caper. Mm-hmm. Also has a kind of feel of French noir from the nineteen sixties. I mean, this movie is very eclectic in its influences, oh, yeah. which is great. And and like yeah, it it really mines all sorts of like film nostalgia i mean it's really uh i think i think the rice omelet section is a direct charlie uh, charlie chaplin uh thing um Mm. illusion um the sensei uh helps with uh tampopo's training and they get another benefactor in the character of a rich old man who is eating next to them at a restaurant and perhaps orders a little too richly he almost chokes to death. Tampopo rescues him by using a vacuum cleaner to suck the thing yeah. that he is choking on out of his mouth. Out of gratitude, he kind of agrees to help fund their uh, endeavor. Um, and so, I mean, what's going on here is we are we are getting the posse together. Right. Um, th- this movie is is a 
it's a ramen western. It is not a spaghetti western. Uh, Goro wears a cowboy hat. He's dressed like a cowboy. He never takes the cowboy hat off. Um, but yeah, we're getting our posse together. And right around this time, we begin... The way this movie works is we get long sections of the main plot, and then the camera sort of loses interest in the main plot <laughs> right. for, or gets like interested in something else. Yeah. And we go off and we watch that. Right. Um, and this next one is our gangster from the beginning is being shot to death in the rain. Um, I, apparently, shootouts almost always happen in the rain. I went and did some TV tropes uh, mm. lookups, and I feel like it's also um, very common in like that the sort of contemporaneous like John Woo Hong Kong films too. Like it's, it's yeah, I can see that. We're we're often in we're suddenly we suddenly go from one type of movie to another type of movie in this movie a lot. Yeah, and our gangster gets a traditional romantic farewell it's like with Beowulf, his girlfriend right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes it's just like Beowulf. it's he's, he's yeah the dragon has killed him he's wounded the dragon he's about to be set off on right. you know his viking funeral and what does he decide to talk to his girlfriend about wild boar yeah and the fact that, <laughs> that wild boar intestines are usually stuffed with yams and if you kill the boar quickly and take the intestines out you can have yam sausages i'm also i'm realizing that this is um roughly two or three years prior to sam neill's death scene in the hunt for red october um where i, I did think of that right oh my God. <laughs> which i i wouldn't it's possible because i don't think that was in the book the tom Clancy novel so it is possible oh that that filmmaker uh you know where you know I would have liked to have seen Montana and we would buy a recreational vehicle would they let me buy a pickup truck <laughs> it is, that is by far the best scene yeah yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah it's I mean these are two different scenes but yeah it's it first we hear you know first yeah but we I mean I actually intend for us to read that book one day uh because I, I think it's a fascinating and it's an excellent movie mm -hmm. um but it we, is good yeah Sam, should... Sam Neill steals the show right um yeah uh so after he dies I'm gonna kick it back to you Right. So, um, you know, and there were some uh, other gangster skits we didn't really mention. We see the young gangster eating a, a, a oyster fresh from a, a young oyster diver and some other stuff happens. But um, then the bully finds Goro. I think the bully's name is Ken. And the, the guy he got in a fight with the first night. And he's feeling regretful that his men ganged up on Goro. And he said, I should have fought you one on one. So they have a a rematch, a, another classic Western scene, but also kind of like a samurai Toshiro Mifune scene at one point, wonderfully silhouetted under a bridge. Uh, mm. They fight to a draw. And then, of course, as men can do now that they've established that neither of them is either greater or lesser than the other, they can then become friends. So they become friends and the bully Ken decides he's going to join the gang and help Tim Popo make her ramen. And he's a contractor. Um, and so he does a stunning renovation of the shop. Um, and then in the midst of all this, we have a series of these moments where Tim Popo 
shows her improved recipe to everybody and then mm. it keeps growing at first it's just two of them then it's three of them now we're up to five men who she's serving to and there's a certain moment where everybody is like yeah this is it you've done it you've made your ramen uh, i should say there's another little skit somewhere in here i don't quite remember how it fits these other things it may have been right after the gangster oh there's two skits there's the con man uh who's in the restaurant who um the, there's also the thief in the grocery store and then there's or, or the, not even the thief she she just ruins food right right she just ruins food she touches it squeezes it and then there's also the dying mother um that was the one of those that was the most memorable to me this woman who is on her deathbed and she's completely unresponsive until her husband says get up and cook dinner for the kids which she then does in a zombie-like state serves it and then kills over dead um, absolutely stunning. And then the father says, eat the food while it's hot. It was, it was the last thing your mother This is the did. last meal your mother ever made. Yeah. Eat, um, eat. So these are, you know, all these other skits that are food adjacent are kind of happening. Um, and then Tampopo opens, and I'll kick it back to you. Um, yeah, Tampopo opens, and it is it is Uh-oh. successful. Um, and we, we're learning along the way that Goro is kind of in love with Tampopo. Um, and uh, a lot of his friends kind of make fun of him for how much he's like clearly in love with her and he denies it and he's like that's not true and but we we kind of get it there's this moment where she kind of dresses up yeah um and uh and puts on her chef's hat um and it's this very sort of glowing uh senior pictures moment um and we get the sense that yeah goro is pretty smitten but since this is a western he rides off we're not he rides off. You don't. You don't get. You don't get your culminations in a western, or at least you don't get. Um, if there is a, a romantic attachment, it doesn't continue. That's just not the way that uh, that these things work. And um, yeah, and uh, Gor- uh, Tampopo's son has now made friends with the three bullies uh, again in a parallel of Goro and Ken's um, experience. And um, I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. Unless I'm forgetting something crucial. Well, and I, you dropped for a second, um, but uh, there is the, the credits roll over a very long shot of a baby uh, suckling at his mother's breast, um, mm. which is, um, and it, and the camera very slowly tracks in um, throughout throughout that shot. So it's a pretty pretty stunning shot. But yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, my those those moments that you mentioned when they are tasting when they're they're sort of doing trial runs of Tampopo's ramen are my favorite moments in it. Like as a piece of visual storytelling, mm. there's no dialogue in it. Yeah. They're just eating. Yeah. The camera doesn't doesn't change. No, there aren't any cuts. And the first time you get to watch that, you you get to watch it unfold that the ramen isn't really hitting yet. And there's sort of this initial enthusiasm and then a real slowing down of the eating. And uh, then uh, the choreography of it is just stunning. And then the second one where it really works is, is equally stunning and equally silent and, uh, you you can really see the influence of like silent movies um, and on this, and um, 
there, there's yeah, so I, my... much subtext in this film, and there's so much visual storytelling in this in oh. this film. I mean, there's a lot of dialogue too, but there, uh, so much of the story is conveyed through things like the camera angle, the editing, and also just what the characters do visually on camera. Yeah, my first question is about framing devices, mm-hmm. um, because we have a series of framing devices that we begin with. So our first framing device is we are at the movies and we are watching a movie of a character in a movie theater telling us that we are watching a movie. Um, From there, we shift to the truck and in it, Gunn is reading a book and we get our very first like sketch that is in the book and then that book influences the action of the whole rest of the movie um what's going on with these like framing devices like what like are we a film inside a film inside a book a film inside a book inside a film um who is the you the gangster is addressing is it us is it somebody else um what and i'm not looking for specific answers to this but what did it do for you? What was your experience of realizing that there was pretty quickly that there were several framing devices being used here? Yeah, I um, well, first of all, I don't know that I would call them framing devices because I don't really think it's a story in a story like in the sense mm-hmm. of a Midsummer's Night's Dream or the Princess or like Bride. Heart of Darkness right. or yeah. Um, so that said, I mean, I, I could see why you would call them that, and especially honestly. That first scene where the young gangster shows up, I had this moment of like, is this just how like every Japanese movie started in 1986? Which would be amazing, (laughs) right? Like that's their version of like, let's all go to the lobby, you know, like or you know Nicole Kidman. Oh my god, you thought it was around? (laughs) Yeah, like just a pre-reel. Please silence your phones. (laughs) Yeah, that's just the like, don't eat and silence your phones, like you know, rather than it being yeah a bunch of like animated. I wish the list listeners can see you i'm gonna pull this video oh i'm not recording god damn it <laughs> god damn it we'll have to recreate we'll it we'll have to recreate it chris mag just mimed the like walking popcorn tub uh for um for i was the, aiming for the soda for, sorry i was aiming for the, I, soda. It was the soda fine like I, I i was going broad i wasn't being very specific about my analogy i thought you know and now we have nicole kidman at amc theaters who like comes out and it's like i'm nicole kidman you should go to the movies and i just thought it was that at or i thought maybe it was that i wasn't sure so it was actually very mm-hmm. not surprising but telling when the young gangster opened that door very mysteriously and i immediately recognized him he has a very striking face so i can i don't know what it's doing i can tell you the effect it had on me yeah um, that's what i'm looking for and and i think the effect it had on me it, it was to put me on notice that the stories in this film were not the most important thing about the film. That, mm. the, that they might be important, but that there is something going on bigger than the individual stories, inclu- all, including the skits and the main narrative. So rather than seeing these as framing devices, I saw them as assemblage devices. It's a, mm. it's a series of stories, and they are sort of welded together 
in interesting ways. And the young gangster is one of the welders, in fact, or yeah. he is the welding material. So we see him at the beginning. And yeah, you could argue it's a movie within a movie because he's apparently coming to watch the same movie that we're coming to see. I think he's talking to us. Um, but I think yeah. what he's telling us is pay attention. There's more going on here than you might realize at first or you might otherwise realize. And I think the same thing with the story at the beginning, what those things are doing, and even the young gangster, what he has this, you know, amazing sort of snack, kind of like Roman snack with wine, like laid out in front of him in order to watch the movie. We're definitely getting the sense that this is going to be about food. It's, and it's going to be obsessively about food. And I, I think that is the effect. And then I think what actually then ends up happening is that later when we we first cut away from the Tampopo and Goro thread in that moment where the the businessman that's less that's less unsettling than it would be otherwise because we've kind of been primed for it and we've kind of been primed for the idea of an assemblage this is going to be yeah. an assemblage of skits and so i think it allows us to kind of go with that moment and not worry about whether we're going to get to spend more time with our friends goro and tempopo later and i think it opens at least what it did is it opened my brain to well why would a director put these different things together unless they're meant to be commenting on each other in some way and from that I'm able to conclude pretty quickly, I would say, by, certainly by the time we get to the gangsters, uh, you know, tryst with the mistress, that this is a movie about different kinds of relationships that people have with food. And so I, I think that's the effect of, that, of those devices. Um, what, what they're trying to do in terms of the reality they create, I wouldn't necessarily care to speculate so much. Yeah, I don't think that part's important. Well, because, I mean, it couldn't be nesting because the gangster then appears right. inside the narrative. Right. Like, as if he has moved from the movie theater into the movie in in a way that that really feels like correct for this particular movie. Yeah, and I think that the other characters are bound by the laws of physics and he's not. Um I, yeah. I think that he is a kind of magical character. Um that in that whenever he is on screen we're experiencing a kind of fantasy we're seeing him but we're sort of seeing him through his own fantastic eyes mm -hmm. including at the beginning too um yeah. sort of a trickster not altogether good not altogether bad uh certainly hedonistic um and and i think kind of helping us like a trickster figure maybe we don't entirely approve of him but but he has some useful knowledge to impart yeah he's like the god of romance mm, interesting you know he, I mean, that, that wonderful line as he's about to die, he just goes, my final movie is beginning. Right. <laughs> as he gets to watch his eyes, his life flash before his eyes. And yeah, I love that answer. I think that's a, that's a really helpful answer. Any other thoughts about the relationship between, we would say the main stem of the narrative is yeah. Tampopo's quest. It's a very classic story. And like, you could imagine this film that just being that, and it would probably be a pretty fun movie. You know, it would be a kind of mm -hmm. quirky, it, might, it would feel a little bit old fashioned, especially with all the yeah. like Mahler and Liszt, you know, and some <laughs> of the like cinematic techniques, but it would be a charmingly old fashioned 
sort of film. Anything else about the relationship between that thread and the other sketches or the other threads that, that you noticed? I think my favorite thing is the way that it's the, the camera is interested in everything. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And because a lot of the time, the way that we move into these threads is that we're in the main shot and then these other characters kind of enter the shot and the camera is like, oh, what's happening over there? Yeah. Like um, the when we get a chance to see the businessman and his dying wife, I think it's right after Goro and Ken have their second fight. Mm. And we pan from them underneath the bridge to this businessman right. running through right. the streets. That's right. Um, and, and that's very often how the, the threads come up. Yeah. And, and then Even usually the what happens is shot, we hear the gunshots in the ramen shop and then there's a, cut. yeah, yeah. You know, the, and the, then there's a cut there. It always, the way that it enters is something pulls the camera's attention away. Yeah. And then when we return to the main thread, it's very often a, a, a smash cut. Yeah. Like we just come back to the main thread. Um, and I just really, it, it's not like. To say that the camera has ADHD is like not fair or uh, to anybody, either the camera or neurodivergent people. Um, but I really love the lack of like attention to classical storytelling structure. Like that there's kind of this like, well, let's go and look at this. Yeah. Um, it feels it feels like, um, you know, like it feels like Ovid's Metamorphosis or something like that where there is less attention to like a very clear narrative and metamorphosis is just about people changing. That's it. Like these like strange fables of transformation that just happen kind of one after another. And it's wonderful. And I think you're right. This movie would work without those. It's like a dodgeball or a, any sports movie yeah. like ever made. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bad news and, bears. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, th I think the, the, the real joy and the strength of the movie are the digressions. We just arrived at something kind of interesting here, too, because like what you then realize for any genre is that once you master a genre, you have a couple options. And one is to keep doing it in a way that will likely become boring unless you can just completely perfect it. Like, say, Shane, which is one of my favorite Westerns, was like, it was like thousands of other westerns that had come before but it was like the best version of that that there had ever been and and this actually this movie reminds me a lot of shane it's the classic a stranger comes to help and then leaves so mm -hmm. it has but the other thing you could then do once you've mastered a genre is play with it or subvert it in different ways and and it it's has anyone, I guess, you know, there was a Ben Affleck movie recently that kind of sort of did this, but then didn't. Um, but has anyone, has anyone played with the underdog sports movie like that? You know, I mm -hmm. feel like there's a wonderful opportunity to make a movie that's like a meta underdog sports movie. And, you know, this one doesn't subvert it by making Tampopo like give up and lose and die. I mean, we still get our happy ending. And I feel like this movie has this really comforting sort of central core to it that then allows us to explore things that I think are quite a bit more disturbing um, or mm -hmm. ambivalent, uh, um, you know, and th yeah, th there's something really fascinating about that structure that I, I think is really useful and it's a good path to greatness 
that mm-hmm. I'd never really thought about before. Um, what are some of the sections about, you, you said that there's some sections of this that you find uh, disturbing or ambivalent. Yeah. Like what, um, tell me about those. Like well, what, what jumps out at you as like, as unsettling aspects of this, of this film? Let me give you two. Um, if that's all right. Um, so of course I think, well, if we could take the spaghetti and the business, the the fancy restaurant scenes as one, I think Mm -hmm. both of those I found a little bit unsettling and I think they're dealing with an unsettling topic, which is, which was a big deal in Japan at that time, which was Japan's modernization and growth and Westernization. And Mm -hmm. in both cases, you essentially have people who through reasons of social hierarchy and social climbing are trying to emulate some kind of behavior and mm-hmm. and that is awkward and it's uncomfortable and and you know in the case of the businessmen i don't know entirely what to make of it but we we understand that they are tremendously embarrassed by their sort of junior partners fluency with the French menu. And really, they shouldn't be, right? Because food Mm -hmm. is for us to all enjoy. You know, it's not a contest. And then, you know, there is something grotesque, sort of like the parable of Lardass from Stand By Me uh, about the spaghetti slurping. But in both cases... You know, there's it's being played for comedy, but you have this sense of tragic aspiration in both of mm-hmm. those little skits that I find both, in you know, to use one of your words, embiggening or um, edifying, but also kind of painful to watch. Yeah. But then the big one for me, where I have the most ambivalence, is the gangster, and and I think because he engages, essentially, if this is a movie about people's relationships to food. He is literally the fetishizer. He fetishizes food. He's a hedonist. And so he uses food to accompany sexual play. And also he merges sort of the aesthetic of the pleasure of the taste with also the aesthetic of the suffering and death. So, you Mm -hmm. know, when he's doing the thing with the shrimp, he's kind of torturing the shrimp. You know, I think what he does is immerse them in port wine and then puts them on his partner's belly. Um, There's a moment with the oyster where he gets cut and then he kisses a probably underage girl who licks the blood off his face but i also think he's taking delight and pleasure in the oysters you know nearly dead state but not entirely dead Mm -hmm. state and it engages a kind of i'm not sure i'm going to use the word socially conservative but a kind of moral it, it, it is a kind of social conservatism but it's not in line with America's conservative movement, social conservatism. Right, totally. Yeah. But but I I mean I have an ethic that I've developed over the years that justifies meat eating. And you know, it actually it was best articulated to me by the man who ran the farm at the place we used to uh, work, Mark. Um, who was a kind of a gruff, middle-aged man, a little bit intimidating uh, to the campers at the summer camp, but one time I saw him Uh, intervene when a bunch of young boys were imitating the sounds made by the sheep, uh, kind of bawling at the sheep. And he ran over to them and kind of gently, but also firmly said, guys, everybody in this farm has a role and they have a job to do. And it's the job of this, these sheep to die so that we can have food and sustenance. And we need to respect that. And Hmm. 
I think I I think that is a clear articulation of my morality around playing with food, and I, I don't like the mm. Nathan's hot dog eating contest. Um, you know what people want to do in the bedroom is their own business, and I'm not going to be judgy about it. But I don't find it pleasurable or enjoyable to see people treating food, particularly animal-based food, mm. as a uh, a source of erotic play, and particularly if it involves kind of the suffering of the shrimp. Um, but yeah. even you know, even the passing the egg back and forth of the mouth, I found that grotesque. Um, oh, it's unsettling. For yeah, sure. I found it very unsettling. It was beautiful. The bright, the vividness yeah. of the colors, um, mm-hmm. all of that. And I think that even though I find the gangster character to be kind of charming, you know, he, he, to me, he does sit in this a similar space. You called him a god of love. But to me, he is more like Loki or Coyote or yeah. Anansi. Like, you know, I wouldn't trust him, but I might find him charming. Um I, I found those moments unsettling and I was more grossed out by them uh, than anything mm-hmm. else, even though I could see viewing the film and finding them sort of titillating, too. And, and it's, actually, I wanted to ask you this question, sort of, what do you think the tone is towards the gangster and towards his erotic experimentation? I mean, it's the gangster owns the more unsettling parts of the movie. Um, you're surprised at the direct address. Anytime you're direct addressed in a movie, there's a moment of like, of of like, wait, me, me, yeah, you know, like, oh shit, okay, yeah. Um, I didn't want to be complicit. I just wanted to watch a movie, and that's that's what you get with uh with with breaking the fourth wall. That's yeah. that's an important aspect of that. Um, the tone as regarding the, I mean, like. The mood of this film is overwhelmingly upbeat, but the tone of voice that goes along with it is cautionary. Hmm. Um, the dying wife, um, who is who is sort of roused to cook her last meal by her husband being like, "I know what will rouse you to action: yeah. make us dinner." Very clear um, social observation oh, yeah. and critique i think and and i mean it the... literally she appears to be dying of fatigue as though she has, <laughs> yeah, totally. as though she is just exhausted from cooking thousands of meals for this family you know yeah if consumption were not tuberculosis if consumption were just like lacking the final will to go on right. she has been sort of consumed by by like drudgery. the role that society, yeah, drudgery has like put upon her. You know, the the gangster is is different. Like, you watch the food and sex scenes. At least I did, and it sounds like you are too. It's they're not erotic. Like, you don't watch them and think, "Oh, I want to do that." Like, maybe towards the beginning, there's a little like, "Oh, that looks like fun," and then it quickly goes like way too far, like crawfish in port wine trapped in a bowl writhing against your lover's stomach while she laughs uproariously <laughs> it's mm-hmm. you're you're we're really he's really like pushing our buttons at this particular moment um i think the tone of voice around the gangster is kind of like this is what happens when things are taken too far I think that he's a cautionary tale and you're right. Like they're like a trickster God usually does end up in cautionary tales. Um, 
you know, trickster gods are are are, are very often getting in over their heads. Yeah. Um, and uh, Br'er Rabbit and things like that getting, you know, stuck in the thorn break. Um, and, and they really are the most unsettling moments of the movie. Um, so I think the tone of voice towards the gangster is cautionary, um, but in a way that you would be like, hey, you know, like that guy, he's funny, but like, don't, I don't think you should hang out with him all the time. Like, sure, he's good for a laugh, but don't fall in with that. Like, fall in with Tampopo or Goro. Yeah. Like, those yeah. are our sort of moral centers of the film. Um, and I think a lot of this movie is is social critique. And um, apparently, Juzo Itami, um, it said that he died of a suicide, but there's, there's some rumors that the Yakuza uh, forced him to leap from a building uh, because... He had a movie coming out that was very, very critical of a local Yakuza um, group. They they definitely uh, attacked yeah. him with knives, and he had he had to uh, recuperate in the hospital after after one of his films about the Yakuza, which was shortly after this one too. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the fact that he's a gangster, I think, is telling. It's interesting. It's a similar tone to Babette's Feast, or it's a similar message, right? It is eclectic. It is an eclectic assemblage of different attitudes to have towards food. And I think, you know, if you take my quote-unquote sort of Wendell Berry conservatism around hedonism in food, the sort of pleasure-seeking that Tampopo and Goro and the gang they assemble are engaged in to me, that does honor the sacrifice, you know, of the pork. Yeah. And even the kind of solemnity when they gather around the turtle and the turtle is quickly dispatched. There's something a little bit mm-hmm. like, oh, we're going to watch it get killed. But it happens very quickly, um, hopefully painlessly. And they're, they're even, they're, there's something solemn about that moment, too, that I, that I sort of feel is, is appropriate. Um, I, you know, I do feel like that central thread in those characters have and are experiencing and exploring the greatest relationship of the food, you know, towards food in Itami's uh, framing, which, you know, which is the pleasurable quest for perfection, you know, that that they are both seeking the perfect ramen, but they are also the pursuit of the perfect ramen is, is in itself a reason for live. And then, you know, the homeless men, I was reading a little bit about homeless men in... Um, Japan during this time, which is it's it's different than in the United States. And there's a lot of shame associated, but there also wasn't really much effort by anybody to do anything about it because it was seen more of as a choice. And so the way in which they also, you know, they they're like the sensei's chorus, literally the sensei's Mm -hmm. chorus. And they surround him and they're almost like demigod avatars of this this endless quest for perfection, which Itami is saying, you don't have to be a rich businessman. You don't have to be a social climber. You don't have to be uh, a con man. Anybody can actually participate in this particular Mm -hmm. quest. You can be a homeless guy rooting through the dumpster. And if you know what you're looking for and you have the right joy, you can have a better culinary experience than some millionaire businessman ordering Heineken, you know, and and that's that's really neat. That scene also to me is a real cast back and a real quote from Cannery Row. Um, Mm. And and actually the fact that um, Goro and Gunn are truckers, that really reminds me of the trucker scene in the film version of The Grapes of Wrath, too. So I see a lot of Steinbeck in this as as well. Sensei and his 
assemblage really reminds me of Doc Ricketts and the boys from Cannery Row. And, you know, in the sense that the way Steinbeck tells that story, you have the sense that actually hanging out with Doc and the boys for a Saturday night party would be the best place you would ever you could ever be, you know, yeah. in in 1920s uh, Monterey. You wouldn't want to be with those fancy suits up in Carmel, you know, in their golf courses and their martinis and their suits. Yeah, he's I, I keep I think there's a reason I keep coming back to the Muppets with huh. this movie. Like the Muppets <laughs> are the, the brilliance of the Muppets is that when they came out, they were nostalgic for a time that was already long gone. Yeah. Like the vaudeville yeah, like variety sure. shows sure. of the, you know, thirties and forties. And um your your doc is Doc Ricketts. Um the uh, the the homeless chorus reminds me so much of Doctor Teeth and the Electric <laughs> Yeah, they have the look of Doctor Teeth, right? Yeah. 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 That's um yeah, it's funny, one of the the guy who smuggles um the guy who smuggles them into the restaurant to make the uh, rice omelet really reminds me of my friend Zeke, um, who I, I don't think you've ever, you may have met him once in New York uh, when we I was visiting you in New York. But he he kind of dresses like that, even though he's not homeless and he walks around yeah. with a slide guitar and you just they have a they have that similar grin like, let's get yeah. up to some mischief. Let's go break into a restaurant and make the perfect omelet. They, they are sort of like happy imps you know they yeah, they have some totally. kind of mythological antecedent that i'm not thinking of you know one other thing that you just said about the curious camera one other thing is that it makes me wonder you know one of the huge influences on this film that i see is john ford you know the man who shot liberty valance the searchers ford apache uh grapes of wrath and one of the things john ford is always doing is playing with the frames created by mm. architectural spaces like mm. homes and so in that moment even when uh goro is fighting the toughs in the rain and tampopo and the kids stand there they're framed in the doorway they're in the safe domestic space the wild rugged rough space in the rain is happening out there every you know it that that was a very john ford like quote and to keep the camera on them was a very john ford like move as opposed to watching the actual fight play out and i think some of those scenes you talk about where the five men are eating the sushi and solemnly drinking the broth the, the broth the setup is also I'd be curious to see if the camera is locked more, like if it's tripoded more mm. during the Tampopo main thread narrative and whether it is more loose and curious during the skits. Like if I were going to watch this again, yeah. that's a visual experiment I would do. I know that during the restaurant scene, the, the camera is very curious. You know, the men mm -hmm. come in and it's, it's clearly a handheld camera and then it slowly tracks in on the junior officer. You can see him studying the French menu and then there's a cut and then it kind of comes back out again and you see everybody. It's a very, very curious camera. Um, and but to do that kind of John Ford style filmmaking where you're framing everybody, you kind of need a locked camera from that and you need people to hit their marks. You spend a lot of time framing. You spend a lot of time yeah. looking at the shot and figuring out where everyone's going to stand. And so that would just be something I'd be curious about if I, if I was going to view yeah, this Yeah, like again. how much... How much tripod and how much dolly? Yeah, and whether know, there's a getting used. Whether it's whether what I, my sense is, it's either dolly or handheld during the skits more and more tripod yeah. during the Tampopo scene. But I could, you know, I, that would be an interesting experiment to go back yeah. and watch. I, I love that fight scene. Like you know, oh, um, so great. It's great. I mean, it's 
I mean, the, the word obscene means off stage, right? Because in Greek tragedy, like you don't have the stuff to do compelling stage violence. Like that just wasn't part of the theater craft in, you know, 600 BC. But very often when bad things happen, when fights or violence happen, it has to happen off stage. So like when Oedipus pokes his eyes out, when Yocasta hangs herself, like that's all happening off stage. Yeah. And this moment of the fight, I was like, oh, like it's just this wonderful moment of like Greek tragedy where things are happening off of the camera. And it's so much more powerful that way. It, it really reminded me of John Ford, and I'm trying to think there might even be a John Ford scene where a fight is staged that way. Um, there's certainly a scene in Shane where Shane and the main the boy, who's kind of the point of view character, Starrett, is that his name? The guy that Shane yep. befriends are fighting together for the first time and they kind of fight off the cattle ranchers and this the kids sitting there i think like eating ice cream or something and every now and again one of the guys that either shane or his dad is punched out comes kind of like staggering over to the clattering into the yeah, frame yeah yeah, yeah. You know, exactly <laughs> and um yeah i think that's the quote i want to go back and watch it but of course part of what's happening is a, the filmmaker is telling us the mechanics of the fight don't matter. What matters exactly. here is that Goro is a tough guy and he's willing to fight, but we're keeping the camera on why he's willing to fight. And that's Tempopo yeah. and the kid. And, you know, the reason in Westerns, I mean, sometimes it's a romantic convention or whatever, it's mysterious, but the, when the, drift, the drifting stager drifts into town, helps and drifts away... The reason for that often, at least in John Ford films, is the sort of man who's needed for the job is not well suited for domesticity. It, right. it, you know, in John Ford's framing, there's sort of two kinds of men. They're the John, there's the John Wayne and there's the Jimmy Stewart, you know, and yeah. the Jimmy Stewart <laughs> is going to like be the lawyer and like build the town. And then there's no place for the John Wayne once he's killed the bad guy. And and what that I think in this case I don't necessarily think there's as much meaning. I think it's my sense is that Itami is not saying as much. He's merely adhering to genre. He's really just saying, yeah, this is a Western and, you know, the yeah. drifter has to leave at the end. He's a trucker. He's a trucker. He's got to go. I don't think it's laden with the same level of symbolism as it is in some of the great Westerns. But it but it helps us put us in in mythic space. Right. No, I think which that's, is, which, I think that's the effect. He's he's telling right. us this is a myth. And that's important right. because like so many of the sketches also function as yeah. like parables or ironic commentary. Like we're it's helping move us out of the realm of like like mere representation. Yeah. And part of like, what he's saying is the particulars here don't matter that much. We're we're yeah. we're, we're going for big ideas, people. But yeah. we're also gonna see some beautiful ramen. I love the flip flop where we get the second fight where we do see the fight. Yeah. Because the point of that second fight is equality, right? Rather than you know what he's fighting for, and it's just I, this this movie's a it's a freaking masterpiece. It's, great. it's it's so great. Yeah, it's so great. I mean, you know, I guess we sort of lucked into it, but but um, uh, I think I could go to trivia now. Yeah, I'm very glad that I didn't go with my original trivia questions, which was about which westerns this is oh. um, a, a direct homage to, um, because it's it's pretty almost every article references Shane as the originating material. So I'm glad I did not go with that one. Um, so 
the largest bowl of noodle soup ever made. Oh. I'm sorry to report that it was not ramen. It was pho, the Vietnamese noodle soup. Yeah. But was that bowl of soup A, 500 pounds? <laughs> B, a shade under 3,000 pounds? C, 6,300 pounds? Or D, ring world sized? <laughs> Excellent. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Niven, we're sorry. <laughs> we love you. We both love you. He's, he's um, alive. I, I think he would love this convention, based on what I know of him. <laughs> um, I think he would be quite honored. Um, what was the third option again? Uh, your your three real options are 500 pounds, a, a touch under 3,000 pounds, and then 6,300 pounds. 6,300 pounds. That's like three trucks. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like you said it's a bowl of soup uh, it was a bowl of soup the, okay. the bowl itself was also um, significantly large I mean it, and it, was, it was, the, this was, was the bowl counted in the weight or was uh, it... no no the bowl the bowl was separate from the weight I feel like you could in theory create 3,000 pounds of soup in a giant cauldron I don't think you I mean I suppose you could do 6,400 pounds, but the resources you would need to mar marshal would be enormous at that point. So I'm going to go for with just under 3,000 pounds, B. You are correct. Nice job. Um, it was uh, made by a Vietnamese food company called Vifon. Mm. Um, it weighed in at 1,359 kilograms or 2,996 pounds, 1.3 ounces. Uh, this article says that that is the same weight as 187 bowling balls. Interesting. Um, which makes me want to chat with this writer. Um, well, we but, all know uh, that a bowling ball very I mean, a, I, I mean, bowling balls vary between at least like in size quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a, like a really weird writing choice. It is a very <laughs> but, strange uh, writing choice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I understand the gesture there, which is to relate it to something more familiar. You know, that's the like, oh, it's three football fields. And men are always like, oh, that makes sense. And women are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, I'm being a little bit sexist here. <laughs> lots of women know how long a football field is, et cetera. And lots of men don't. But I that was a particular thing in my household growing up was the sort of complaining about the use of uh, of uh, football fields as a standard measurement. Um, apparently, Miss Universe Vietnam was also in attendance ah. um, at this uh, at this feed. Um, and it was uh, served to 1963 hungry spectators uh, because 1963 was the year that this particular company uh, was formed. Um, it is in the Guinness Book of World Records, the largest bowl of noodle soup ever made. I wonder what the canonical, if this is the canonical ramen film, what is the canonical pho film? Oh, there's got to be one. I mean, I, I think... Fuck gives ramen a run for its money. I mean, you can tell that they are related cuisines and they're both working class. And, you you know, roasted meat, mm -hmm. noodles, broths are different. I, I, I actually find pho a little bit easier to make. Um, yeah. And I usually use, um, I'll often use, uh, they, they use a fish paste, but what I'll often do is buy a can of anchovies and then mm -hmm. boil the anchovies into a very thick broth and then add that broth to my sort of chicken or our beef stock to kind of get that plus the um star anise and a few mm -hmm. other aromatics but anyway let me give you your trivia question um, sure. 
Juzo Itami, the director of Tampopo, had a very close relationship with one of the film's actors. Was it A, Nobuko Miyamoto, who plays Tampopo, was his wife? B, Yoshikato, who plays Sensei, was his acting coach in the 1950s? Or, you know, actual sensei. Or C, Mampe Ekiuchi, who plays Tabo, Tampopo's boy, was his nephew, his uh, sister's son. I wish there was a D, all of the above, because I think that would be awesome. Um, I believe it's A. Yes, she was his wife. And I, cast I think, in a bunch of his other work. Yeah, and I think there's a few little subtle jokes that make that apparent particularly sort of her being described as kind of like mousy and unattractive but then later when she does have that kind of transformation and she puts on her 80s clothes she's actually quite dazzling you know yeah and and i it's a it's a little bit of a joke on that actress's um ability to kind of play mousy or play Mm -hmm. dazzling too which feels like a a very husband-like sort of directorial joke that you know he's gonna he's gonna cast her as this sort of matronly widow character who's pretty but maybe seems a little past her prime but then show that she can also dazzle too when she wants to yeah it's a real she's all that moment yeah oh i haven't seen she's what yeah oh my god <laughs> yeah. weird, but I, I didn't get the reference right a, a, a mousy character made over also i'm trying to remember uh was it marissa tomei in clueless or uh, th- there's a there's also a moment like that in Clueless too. That's funny. I have not seen Clueless, which blows my mind. No. Um, it, it is definitely a movie that I should have seen, given you know my uh, time of upbringing and my penchant for you know like like books of Jane Austen's era. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, one, day, I mean, one day I hope we read some Jane Austen. Oh, we are. We're going to read some Jane we Austen. Are. Yeah. We are. Yeah, yeah. We, we both should start reading Bleak House. <laughs> like we we need to that's one that we should probably get going oh because it takes a long it's time gonna, it's a big book um well good um, work we both got the trivia um so listener next will be ong lee which by the way what a great director um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> ong lee's early relatively early in his career film eat drink man woman uh i believe it's widely available so take a look for that uh did this movie meet your expectations you know, I, I, I think that I think it exceeded them in a way. I, I did think it was going to be more of a story and less of an assemblage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a way, there was a, a part of me that was sort of like, oh, I thought this was going to be a great little like sort of noir story, kind of like a Bad News Bears. Uh, but then I think this is actually, yeah, it, it exceeded my expectations. It's a, it's a brilliant film, I think. What about you? I, didn't, I, I almost had no expectations going into it um, because I learned to set aside my expectations after the cook, the thief, <laughs> wife, the um, and I was just so I just loved this. I had such a blast. I can't wait to watch this with as many people as I can. Um, the, the, it's, it's a joy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'll watch it again too. I mean, there's so much to look for. Anyway. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the truck drivers, young gangsters, and senseis. Music by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. 
And we have a listener survey on our website. Please fill it out. And thank you uh, to the person who did fill it out. Uh, if you do, we will enter you in a drawing to win a storied Bluetooth speaker. Perfect for listening to Upper Middlebrow. Go to uppermiddlebrow.com for the link to the survey. And a reminder, Chris and I are both writers and editors, and we can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing project. You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com. Check them out and get in touch if you want to talk about how we can help you with your project, big or small or medium. See everybody. Go, go enjoy some ramen. Yep. Go have some tonkatsu. Go have some tonkatsu. Try to make your own. It's hard. It's not easy. Give yourself yeah. 24 hours if you're going to try to make your own. I tried to do it in about six hours, which was not enough time. Mm, Although, it turned yeah, out okay, you need but to, need a little more time to reduce that collagen. Yeah, you got to get that real depth of flavor. You need, a good, you need a good steam kettle. That was one of the great joys of working in like big restaurants. You'd like steam kettle like that you could like cook a person in. <laughs> which has probably happened. <laughs> oh, my God.